Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 135 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. And actually, if you go to The Mandolin Cafe right now, you can enter to win a KR Strings Mandolindo. It's a $1,999 value, and all you have to do is put your first name, last name, and email. So yeah, I would go there now and enter. What a great deal. And I hope everybody's doing good. I'm doing a bit better here. Editing is still a little tough causing some numbness and different things like that, but much better now. I really appreciate, again, lots of emails and uh, well wishes, so thank you so much and some advice. I appreciate that as well. Uh, I think I'm actually going to be able to play. I've been able to play a little bit of mandolin this week for the first time in a bit, so that's been really, really refreshing. And uh, just working on a bunch of good stuff, and I will post that on the episode number two for the Patreon subscribers. Uh, that'll be up probably Monday this coming week. It's still a bit of a bear to do, but yeah, I'll discuss some things I've been listening to and working on and try to play some parts of that. And you can subscribe at Patreon. Uh, it's $1 a month or up to $10 a month. You can you can do so. If you want to support the podcast or Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash mandolins and beer. Um, this week is Michael Hyden. Whew. What a great talk with this guy and just inspiring. And it's it really it really inspires me to listen to people who have been doing something for 40 plus years and are still working at getting better. And I think we all can learn a lot from that. He talks a lot about, you know, it's in, a lot of this is in the player's hands, too. So great conversation with him. All right. I want to thank my sponsors this week. Peghead Nation has a brand new course coming out. It's Brazilian Choro Mandolin. It's taught by Ian Curry. Add Ian to the incredible list of instructors like Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. You can't go wrong. It's the it's the best Best group of instructors for mandolin quality out there. And you can join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Start learning some Shoro. Yeah, and, and by the way, if you go to Peghead Nation's um, Instagram, there's some, some footage of Ian playing a tune. It's, it's incredible. So be sure to check that out. Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs. They hand-build microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Also follow them on the Instagram. It's remarkable how many professionals use their instruments, and uh, there's a good reason for that. So check them out. Thank my friends over at Pava Mandolins. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player right out of Austin, Texas. Beautiful mandolins. And hey, let's say let's say you want to take up building mandolins like Michael did here. Well, then you're going to appreciate the fact that once again, during an episode with the Luthier, Michael shouts out Roger Simonoff's incredible book, The Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual. And it's now in its fourth edition. It's only $44.95 and it has everything that you're going to need to get started with this process. It's got the fold-out construction drawings. It's got uh, two full-size fold-out fixture drawings, uh, 10 full-size peghead inlay drawings, 330-plus color photographs plus color shading and finishing techniques. And you're going to find out how important that stuff is here coming up in the episode with Michael. So go to Siminoff Books. 
Bluegrassmandolin.com today and get your copy of the Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual. And I know some people, we're all busy, so maybe you don't have time to build your own mandolin. Well, you can definitely buy one. And if you're looking for mandolins and want to do some incredible window shopping, I recommend Elderly.com. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, did I mention mandolins? Includes all the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year, they're family-owned and operated, they ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com or give them a phone call at 517 372 7880. That's actually where I first got my, um, I would say like a mid level priced mandolin, and they were super helpful and really set it up nice before I left. And I, I can't even keep track of how many bought books and, and CDs I bought from there when I still lived in Michigan. So, Elderly Instruments, great to have them on as a sponsor. And thank you guys so much for listening. Please follow me at Mandolins and Beer on Instagram, Facebook. Leave me a review on the iTunes store. Uh, Again, if you could do some support at the Patreon page, that would be awesome as well. Let's get into this episode with Michael Hyden. And let's lead into it with Hyden in Plain Sight off Andrew Collins' incredible new album. Cheers, everybody. All right. Well, it's my pleasure to have on the podcast today, Michael Hyden. Michael, how's it going? It's going very, very well indeed. Working hard, enjoying myself. Fantastic. Bet. And you are in British yeah. British Columbia? Yeah, I'm in the eastern British Columbia, uh, the, uh, towards the Alberta border in the Kootenays, a town called Creston. Very nice, uh, sleepy little little town, uh, farming town. And, uh, yeah, it's a nice place to hide away and from the rat race. I love it. <laughs> That's great. Well, I was talking to you <laughs> yeah. right before we started this, I was like, just in, in the, um, in the past, like probably month and a half, I've had Ben Winship, John Skian, and, uh, and Andrew Collins all on, and right. all of them spoke so highly of your mandolins. I'm like, well, it just seems like I need to make this, make this happen soon because well, yeah, perfect nice. timing. <laughs> well, and it doesn't hurt that they're all great guys too. And they, they, they're very big supporters and uh I, you know i love their what they do when it's a symbiotic thing you know? yeah you know what i in, in looking at your um your artist list um it, next week my guests are mr sun and they have a new album coming out and they covered tamp em up solid they covered the rye cooter version and i see rye oh, cooter yeah. uh you built a mandolin for rye cooter or an instrument for rye cooter at least Well, I did. I, I didn't build one for him custom. It was uh, funny how that worked out. I I had an extra one of my heritage models here. Oh yeah. Um, I think I think a customer bowed out from it at the end uh, for whatever reason, and so I had an extra one of my very very top model. And just at that point, uh, Rye called me 
and said he had um, played one, uh, a mandolin of mine somewhere, and he was very, very interested in getting one. So I said, well, you're in luck. I've got a really, really nice heritage one here, and I'll send it to you. And um, I just uh, packed it up and sent it off to him and uh, to try. And I got a phone call saying, oh, man, he said, this isn't coming back to you. Just <laughs> in the mail. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he sold it a few years ago. Uh, he, he buys and sells a lot of instruments. He's, uh, you know, he loves uh, old banjos and old arch tops and funky stuff. And uh, he found this very expensive banjo that he had to have. So he had to liquidate <laughs> a few things. <laughs> so, yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. And about a, about a year before um, he bought the, the Heritage, I he sent me um, an F what was it, an F7? No, no, it was an L7 guitar I did for him and restored that. But he had an F, uh, you know, a slightly lower model Gibson F model that he bought new in 1959. And it, it didn't work for him. It didn't really play all that well. So he took it down the street to uh, Paul Bigsby was around at the time. And um, he took it down to Paul Bigsby and Paul, (laughs) he wrote it in, um, a big humbucker pickup into the top, <laughs> like literally <laughs> a big hole in the top, and mounted this monster humbucker pickup and a and a some sort of a one of his Bigsby tailpieces or something, and turned it into this uh, electric mandolin that didn't really work. And so he said it sat under the bed for the last thirty years, and I would like you to um, put a new top on it and make it into a playable acoustic mandolin again. So that's what I did. I took the old top off, which was useless, and b- rebuilt it with a new top and uh, refinished the whole thing, and And uh, he loved it. So, you know, that that's his main uh, blues mandolin now. Wow. Wow, that's yeah. wild, man. There's a giant humbucker in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this monster humbucker pickup. Yeah, really inappropriate, but, uh, you know. Yeah. At the time, he thought, "Oh, I just want a big, big electric sound, you know, to play slide mandolin or something." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of his music. Boy, I've always loved him, and it was such an honor to to have him play one of my mandolins, even if it was only for about a year. But you know, he was, and I've done other work for him, and that that was, you know, really nice. He's a <laughs> he's quite a master. Well, I mean, speaking of speaking of that too, though, like um, John Reichman, who. I would say if you were to take a poll, may have one of the best sounding lore mandolins. And yep. I mean, the fact that he's also a player of one of your mandolins, I think speaks pretty highly about your, your work as well. That, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's pretty, pretty amazing as well. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a great honor. I, um, John is the, of course, you know, the, the tone meister and uh, he, he loves the tone of the one I built for him. Um, and he uses it uh, with lighter strings and uh, lower action and plays his jazzier choro. And uh, when he plays with Jim Miller, he plays that mandolin because it's got more sustain. It really is um, very full and sweet. And it's not not like a bluegrass sound, sounding mandolin at all, really. And so it's perfect for his jazzy stuff. If you're familiar with what he does with Jim Miller, beautiful. Oh, man, yeah, I love um, that stuff.
duets, you know, gorgeous music, and a choro, of course. So that's what he uses it for. Uh, you know, it's not his main acts, of course. You know, he can't show up at a gig without his lore. People would be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. right, you're right. welcome too, John, but your lore is most important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I see John's no, here. Is the lore here? <laughs> yeah, have you got the lore? Oh, good, good, good. Everybody wants to look at it and touch it. And, oh, yeah, this is the lore, you know. You know, but it's uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, so many people are a big fan of John John's playing, and uh, rightfully so. And uh, I get so many calls from people saying, I'd love you to build a mandolin that sounds like John's lore. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and, I, and I've, I've gotten kind of cheeky, and I say, mm, do you play like John? Or do you get that kind of tone? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I, I just like to cut to the chase because I, I like to impress on people that, you know, that, that mandolin is really a beautiful mandolin. But I would say 80% of the sound that comes off it is John's hands. Absolutely, you know? yeah. As with any instrument, you you know, if you've ever gone to any of those mando tastings, um, and John will play, you know, 50 mandolins, you know, play a little bit of each, the same tune on each one. Well, everybody comments and says, you know, with the exception of one or two of them, they all sounded like John, you know? <laughs> Go figure. You know, he got the most amazing, I always joke and I say that, well, John could get that sound out of a two by four with strings on it. You know, he's got such wonderful technique. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't mean to diminish the, the mandolin or anything, but it, it, it's so much um, in the hands of the player. And there's so many other stories out there of like, you know, um, it could be Chet Atkins or Bill Monroe or somebody saying like, oh man, that mandolin sounds amazing. And then they put it on a stand or like, yeah, well, how's it sound now? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or let somebody else play it and it sounds fairly average and they, they realize suddenly, oh, maybe I need to practice more. It was at a at a, one of those workshops at, at Wintergrass where you had everybody on stage. I mean, Ronnie McCurry and Chris Teeley and everybody, Amory Lester. And uh, when they got to John, somebody in the audience said, so John, what are you working on these days? And in his lovely, typical deadpan way, he said, I'm working on my chop. <laughs> and you know he has one of the best chops in the business i mean when that guy lays down a rhythm it's just oh in the pocket you know and he's working practicing and you could see i turned around because i knew there was going to be quite a reaction and i saw so many slack jaws going oh my god you're kidding <laughs> he's working on his chop oh i think i know what i need to work on <laughs> right right oh wow that's classic yeah. man that's great. Yeah. So how did you, now did you play music before you started, before you started building instruments? Were you a big fan of like folk and bluegrass and stuff like that? How'd you get into this? Well, yes, I, I was, I was a classical pianist when I was a kid. And of course, cliche, when the Beatles came out, I switched to guitar <laughs> when I, when I was nine, you know, and said, no, I don't want to play piano anymore. I, I want to play uh, folk and, and Beatles. And so I had a friend who, uh, I was taking guitar lessons and he and he would come back and he would teach me what he learned and the chords and and we sat in my backyard when I was a kid and we just sang our hearts out playing Beatles songs you know <laughs> and yeah and then you know then I think um, right around that time I got my first steel string guitar a Yamaha and it, it, the action was pretty poor and uh, so I I just tried to do some work on it and I made it play better and I thought well this is kind of fun and um, literally, uh, only a few years later, I uh, stumbled upon a, 
um, a commune on the Gulf Islands that said, uh, yeah, you can come and live here in the woods and, be, you know, grow food and live in a dome up in the woods. And they were all instrument makers. Whoa. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I was like 17. I got to uh, watch what, what they were doing, and, and I was just intrigued with the whole lifestyle and working with wood off the beach and, you know, just, wow, this is really cool. So when I was, uh, and, and so I, and I played guitar and when I was 18, I took up, um, fiddle, um, living up here in the Kootenays. And I thought, Oh, this is, I want to play more music. So I went back to Vancouver and, um, started, you know, uh, busking and playing with people and learning fiddle and, and bands. And then, uh, by the time I was 19, I had a, uh, I was renting a house and, um, I made a little workshop and I started, um, learning to do repair and building dulcimers, which were very popular at the time. And um, then I, you know, I think it was, it was like 47 years ago, I built my first guitar and, um, and a mandolin. And um, that's all I've been doing ever since, you know? Wow. So that's yeah, amazing. It, it, it caught me. And then I, of course I played in, uh, uh, you know, fiddle in, in lots of old time and bluegrass bands and, uh, you know, folk. I lived in Calgary for 10 years and played in numerous uh, bluegrass bands and, and folk clubs, house bands, and got to play with some great people, uh, you know, real love, lovely audiences and sing-alongs. And, you know, it was just a, a glorious time. And so between, between touring on weekends with bands um, I was, I always had my shop and I'd, I'd work in my shop when I was home and, uh, and met lots of players on the road. That's how I met Ben Winship and John actually was at, um, at the Chilliwack Bluegrass Festival. Oh, no kidding. Um, I wasn't living, yeah, I wasn't living there at the time. I did live in Chilliwack for 15 years, but, um, um, I, um, that's where I met Ben and I had already, I had made a couple of mandolins in Calgary and, um, and John, I met through the bluegrass scene in Vancouver and, um, Ben ordered one like right off the, right on the spot. He said, Oh, build me a mandolin. You know, that was 30 some odd years ago. So, yeah. So that was a, a huge part of my business was touring and meeting people and they'd see my mandolin and go, Oh, well, can you make me one of those? <laughs> and that's how, that's how the mandolin business started. Since then, I've stopped touring and, and playing. I, I haven't played for years now. I just I decided I wanted to to stay home and and be be more in control of my workshop time. It's really hard to to um, get anything done when you're off touring all summer and this and that. You know, it's so yeah, I just thought now nah, I want to stay home and watch my tomatoes grow and, and build <laughs> instruments. So I, I quit touring. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Well, now when yeah. when you when they were building instruments at the, um, like the commune that you went to, were they built, were mandolins one of the instruments that they were building? Or was no. That... No, there was nothing there that really inspired me too much, except for the, the, the lifestyle. Like down in the, in the, the log, log um, cabin workshop, they built, uh, there was one fellow there who built harps, little Irish harps, and another fellow built, was building dulcimers and a few little guitars. And I built a, a banjo neck when I was when I was there when I was seventeen. I built a, a, a banjo neck, and um, and that uh, I, I really found that uh, fun. And the, the guys were great. It was just a just a sort of an observational learning process. They didn't actually teach me, but I, I just 
I just would make coffee and sweep up the floor for them and just watch what they were doing and uh, you know and just absorbed it. Uh, it was about it was about the lifestyle as much as anything, you know. Um, I, I always felt that, you know, I said to myself way back then, I said, yeah, one day I'm going to live in the woods like this and have a really nice little shop and, and build instruments for sale. And that's what I want to do. And so, <laughs> so eventually it took, it took me until 40 to get that together. But um, I finally bought a place in the country and built a shop. And uh, I went, hey, I made it at 40. I said I would. And here I am. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Good yeah, for it was, you. It was, it was, it's been a good, a good path. <laughs> So when you built number one, what, um, I mean, cause again, you know, like resources now to do anything, I mean, you could probably rebuild an engine on YouTube if you needed to. I mean, you can look oh. up anything on the internet, but you know, when, That's what right. year did you build your first mandolin and, and how did you approach it? And like, what resources did oh. you have? Oh yeah. Well, that was a, that was painstaking. I was in <laughs> Vancouver. I was about 20, I was about 22 or so at the time, 23 and a very good friend of mine um, uh, commissioned me to build him a mandolin. I had built him a, a Florentine guitar, which is to this day kind of a kind of a real special guitar. It's got a full Florentine headstock, like the mandolin, with a gorgeous inlay on it that uh, a friend of mine who who started all the inlays for Larrave guitars uh, did for me. And and it has a point like a, a F model mandolin. And Brazilian rosewood, a beautiful guitar. Anyway, so I built him a mandolin, and fortunately, there was no, there was no one to talk to about it. I, I didn't, I didn't have connections in the United States. I, I had never seen a good Gibson mandolin, an F model. There were, there was nothing. The only thing there was was the Roger Simonoff book, the Building a Bluegrass Mandolin, which I ob- obtained probably around that time. So, and it was a great instructional. Um, uh, you know, method and, and mainly with the staining and the coloring and the to get the look, you know. But a lot of the details, like how to be when I built that first mandolin, I didn't have that book, and there were a lot of things about it that I didn't have a clue. You know, carving tops and graduating plates and and binding the headstock was a nightmare. I, I couldn't figure <laughs> out how to do it, you know. So <laughs> right. that was a huge learning curve. <laughs> yeah, that's and, that's and it wild. got destroyed, unfortunately. Oh uh, no! He sold really? it to somebody else who hung it in a, on the wall next to a wood stove. Oh jeez! <laughs> <laughs> and it just self-destructed. I still had it in a box for years, but it, it never got rebuilt. It was just destroyed. So oh. that was the end of number one. <laughs> was that a was that an F style? Yeah, I was an F style. Yeah. yeah, so you like dove head first. <laughs> you were like, oh yeah, no, I didn't even know about A models. I, I just thought, oh, well, this is what a mandolin looks like. <laughs> it was a very ambitious, uh, you know, endeavor. Really, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But you know, uh, if there's anything that I am, it's stubborn, and um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I love to know how things work. I know I like building things of all, you know, all kinds of things. I've always liked working with my hands. And, and uh, so it was a great challenge, and I and I didn't get discouraged at all. I just thought, well, no, that's this is this is cool. I want to build more of these. But it was years before I built another one. I think I was in Alberta by the time I built another one, and um, and I never had many orders for them for for a lot of years. And it wasn't until really around the time that I met Ben, which was around uh, oh god ninety ninety ish eighty nine or ninety. Um, that I built Ben's and um, 
then the orders just started flying in. I then I didn't I hardly built any guitars after that point because the mandolins just took off. I, I had so many orders coming in. You know there weren't uh, there weren't a lot of makers at, at that time. Um, Tom Ellis had had taken a break from. He had started building earlier than that, I think. But he stopped for a number of years because there was really no market in the '80s. There was no market for mandolins. And so he, he concentrated on his pearl work. And a lot of the other builders, I don't think they were building um, mandolins. So there really wasn't a, a, any, anything other than a Gibson out there. And people were just dying for something, um, you know, different, custom, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially during that era. Well, I mean, when it was, you know, not not legendary Gibson instruments being built <laughs> at that time. Yeah, you know? exactly. The 80s. Yeah. yeah. No, not so much. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. when um, tools and different things like that, I mean, did you so you already had like some woodworking tools because you had built a guitar. But like, what did you yeah. use when you first started? I mean, did like for oh. planing and all that good stuff? Oh, really? Very rudimentary. Um, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I didn't have any money. I was pretty much a, just a, a, a street busking uh, hippie at that point, <laughs> and I didn't really didn't have any money. I refused to go back to work to, to a job. I, I I knew there was no future for me uh, working for somebody else. I just couldn't do couldn't see doing that. So I I had very little. My mother bought me a beautiful German uh, hand plane and a chisel. And I and I found found I found a couple of clamps in the wall of that cabin on Galliano. After everybody moved off the commune, they tore that cabin down, and I was hired to help dismantle it. And in the wall of the cabin, I found a rifle and two <laughs> screw um, wood clamps, <laughs> which I still have to this day. Oh, cool! And I used. <laughs> wow. You know, but I had nothing. I had a pocket knife. I had a couple of files. I had a plane. And a chisel and a, and a drill. My mom bought me an electric drill too. So I had the very, very, very basic tools. I did everything at that point with uh, like a scraper plane for thicknessing rosewood backs, uh, this hand plane for for uh, planing spruce tops, and uh, a chisel, one chisel, and a drill. And and that's what I used for a, a while. And uh, I eventually acquired a few little things like a you know a, a table saw. And uh, a, a bandsaw, a very rudimentary bandsaw, and uh, you know, it, it's. It, I learned from that that what you, what you create is is ninety percent your hands and your eyes, and tools are a luxury. They're lovely to have, but you know, you can do so much with so little if you're determined and you know how to use those few tools. So many uh, builders. In the last few years, they they like you said the YouTube videos. They see these shops with all this equipment, and they feel that oh my, I have to have all this stuff if I want to build guitars. And so they have to have table saws and you know all of the, and it does it makes sense. You want a shop, you want a drill press, you want bandsaws, a thickness planer, you know all the tools. But those were those came along many years down the road. I mean, I really didn't have much at first, and um, you know. It was a good learning. So when I teach people, I teach them the the like how I learned I, with hand tools. If you can't make your hand, you know, coerce that wood into shape <laughs> <laughs> right. with, with few tools, 
you you don't really understand the what's involved and and about grain and and runout and all the things that are very important when you're working with wood how to how to carve it and make it look nice and uh, you know so I teach people without all the all the power tools you know you got to learn hands on here first you know get get a feel for the materials. So then um, you know between that time. Had you had you taken apart a mandolin before building that number one that you built? Had you had like access to like no, no kidding? No, no, I'd never I had never even seen an F model really. I'd never really played one or wow. handled one. We up here we don't get we didn't get instruments like that. And even to this day, if you go shopping for a mandolin, there are very few stores in Canada. There are a few now, um, but back then there, nobody carried mandolins, and if they did, it was some awful, um, <laughs> you know. Or Taiwanese or, or whatever, really, you know, very beginner, uh, not very good instruments. And that was all there was. And so I had nowhere to go to look and see one. I wasn't traveling to the States at that point. And I, and I you know, I, uh, I'm afraid I'm a, a little bit of a, a old school in that I like to kind of reinvent the wheel when I make something. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I had to figure it all out, and uh, and eventually I got that book, as I said, the Roger Simonoff book, and and that really uh, opened up my eyes. And oh, okay, okay, that's what you do, and that's how they're built. And and then I got a, a set of Gibson, old Gibson um, plans, lore plans, um, like almost forty years ago, and and uh, and that, and then I went, okay, now I've got, at least got something to work with, but. At that point, I had already developed a bit of an understanding of what's involved. I mean, the plates, the, the tone bars, the neck angle. You know, the neck angle was a, and the dovetail, the traditional Gibson mandolin dovetail setup is a very, very tricky thing to do by hand. You know, fitting the neck and it takes an enormous amount of patience, and because there's so many different angles you have to take into account, and to make sure you end up with the, the neck straight and the bridge height right, and and you know, it's a tricky tricky thing to do so um i forget what i was where i was going with that but you know doing everything by hand uh, it t- it takes a bit longer sometimes but getting that feel for how the neck fits to the body i think is so crucial to the instrument and and the dovetail i like i like traditional methods i'm uh, when i build guitars i do like a martin dovetail I, I don't, uh, but I'm personally don't believe in bolts and uh, and mortise and tenons and you know quick quick and easy joints. I love the dovetail. I've as a repairman, I've I've reset necks on hundreds of Martins, and it, it is such a blessing to be able to do that, to be able to steam a neck off in five minutes that uh, it's been on there for you know fifty or sixty years and uh, and with anything else you know it's just not quite the same I know that the factories uh, they're not building the same thing but you know the idea of metal bolts in the neck joint uh, I understand you know I do understand why people do it the ease of repair and the ease of construction in a factory setting but it's not. You know, it's not the tradition, and I, I'm a, I love the tradition of luthiery. If I was going to build violins, I, I wouldn't, you know, use a screw to put the neck on, or you know. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. So once you started, when those orders started coming in, at at what point, or did you have like a waiting list at one point and different things like that as well? Did it get like overwhelming, or was it just kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm I, I can keep up with this? It, it was a bit overwhelming, but it was wonderful. I mean, at one point, 
um, very soon after I started to get a lot of orders around 2000 to 2001, I had a, I had like a three year waiting list at that point and like, you know, 40, 50, 40 or 50, um, orders in, in the, in the works, you know? And, uh, and it was great. Then they just kept coming in. It was, it was bounty. Um, you know, the people wanted them so, so much. And that was, that's why I never built any more guitars because the, the mandolins were just so in demand. And, you know, it's slowed down since then because now there are, um, so many great builders all over the place. And, uh, and that's what happened to my guitar market was that, um, um, right about that time, it was 96. I went to, um, I, I was invited to Nashville by Mark O'Connor to come and show him some guitars. And I, I wasn't building mandolins, uh, like really much at all at that point, a few, but, and so I, I went to, to Nashville and I hung out with Mark for a bit and I showed him some guitars and he, he loved my jumbo. And so I went back and I built him a, a couple of guitars and, but it never, at that point it was when the mandolin thing really took off and I didn't get any more guitar orders. They just, they just kind of, it just kind of stopped and I didn't chase it. I didn't want to pursue it because I was building mandolins and, um, my my guitar market pretty much died, and uh, to this day, I don't get guitar orders. Um, there are so many good guitar makers. Every, I like to say that every town has a good guitar maker now. You know, it's just <laughs> it's it's a renaissance. It's it's unbelievable. There are so many great makers out there: boutique guitars, and um, you know, functional guitars, and I mean, uh, you know, artistic guitars. There's so many something for everyone, and unless you really promote it you know you people don't know about me they don't know that i build guitars so so if i was to start that again i would i'd have a quite an uphill climb i'd have to compete with all these other great uh, luthiers you know well you know i i think they probably feel the same way about you know like beginning mandolin players probably think a little bit the same sort of thing like oh geez i jump in and have to compete with Haydn mandolins <laughs> you know? well that's true yeah that's you know? true yeah but then there's something for everyone, you know. The, I've, I've just ordered a, a cheap, uh, a cheaper mandolin for a, a gal here in town who's just starting, and she's a nice player, but she wants to learn how to play bluegrass mandolin. And, and there's nothing in the under a thousand dollar range that you know, the very few that are like really playable mm-hmm. and um, and have some tone, and that you're not going to outgrow in two weeks. So I finally found her something from a, a dealer friend of mine, and uh, I've ordered it, but. Um, there, there are there are beginner builders who are actually building very nice stuff, you know, and they're they're charging this amount. And then there's you know there's there are many steps up to um, to one of mine or Steve Gilchrist or Lynn Dudenbost, you know, the Nugget. I mean, those all of us have worked forty years, pretty much, to get to this point, you know, and and the prices are, are reflective of that. So you know, I always tell people. Buy the if you're really serious about learning to play mandolin, save up a little bit more and buy the the best you can afford at this time. You know, don't don't cheap out, but get the best you can get for for now because you'll number one you'll be able to resell it for a bit more, and and then and you'll enjoy it more. You'll you will last longer with it before you make your next step up. You know, and eventually, uh, you know, I get uh, I mean I get a lot of people and I know that all the all of, 
the top builders do too. We get a lot of people who have moved up through the ranks, you know, through Eastman and Weber and this and this and this. And eventually, if they're serious and they and they start learning how to make tone and and want something that plays really nicely and has that beautiful woof, you know, when you 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 know, and the pop and clear highs, you know, eventually they get to the point where they they realize that they're going to have to spend much more and get something that is going to last them then for life because it's got all the the tone and the, you know everything built into it that you can de- you can develop with the, the last thing you want to do is be uh, constantly uh, swapping and, and moving from one mantle into the next to the next to the next you you need to grow into a good instrument like John Raishman's had his lore now for you know I don't know 35 years or so um, you, you know and you become so joined to it that you you know every little tonal nuance you know how to make it work and uh, and so i encourage people don't don't spend all your time buying mandolins and and cheap ones and hoping that it, this is going to be the allure you know it, it doesn't work <laughs> right, that way. Right. Yeah. You, you have to commit to it and pay uh, eventually pay the amount to get the, the right instruments and with anything with violins i as a fiddler i I've never had a lot of money to buy an expensive violin to play. And so I always, I did that. I was, for the first few years, I was just constantly trying buying new old fiddles and trying and trying and trying. And they never worked. They never did everything that I wanted. They were, you know, there's always something missing. And, uh, you know, if I had had the money, one time I did find a violin that was just absolutely gorgeous and it, I could have had it and it got sold out from underneath me. Oh. <laughs> a concert master from a, a, a major city symphony came in the day after I had told them that I want it. I'll be back with the money like next week. No. They sold it on me. Oh, <laughs> no. And, uh, and uh, I was so disappointed that, but eventually I found a nice violin that I that I could afford, and I played that for you know thirty years, and it, it worked very good. It was a nice handmade fiddle made in Toronto, and by an old guy years ago, and it, it worked out good. But uh, I'd always craved a really nice, uh, beautiful, um, you know, old sounding, rich fiddle, and I and I never found that, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> So I learned from my own own life that uh, you know you, you need to you need to step up and get some money together and, and get a, a good instrument if if you really want that tone you know. When you were building these and you had all these orders, were you building them in batches then at that point? Um, at first, no. Um, at first, I was just doing one at a time, and um, and then when the orders started getting to be uh, you know a little overwhelming. Then I started doing batches and, and making parts in batches. And, and I've always done that since then. I would, I'll make up a bunch of parts, but then I will focus on two up to varnishing. And then I'll go back and work on two more while those two are curing. And, and I still do that. I, I still work in twos. I have two right now that are, are the varnish is cured and they're ready for the final uh, rub out and and um, french polish and then i have two more that i'm just varnishing right now they take a month to cure so that now i've just sprayed two more and i have two more that are almost built i'm just putting the backs on and then i have about you know about another four more in pieces on in on the bench so i've got the neck made and i've got the top and back made sides bent 
ready for assembly. So I, I don't waste any moments. Uh, you know, when when something gets into the varnish, okay, now I've got a month to work on these, and then once those are sprayed, now I've got a month to go back and uh, and um, and work on these two and parts. So I've you know I've always got stuff on the go, and it's really nice to I, I've got quite a few parts put away, um, tops, backs, and necks already made. So now when I go to build one, I just go to my shelf and I go, okay, well, this guy wants a, a sugar two-piece back and uh, they want this inlay, so I've got this neck made and I can put them together fairly quickly. I'm trying to get to the point, though, because I am slowing down and my energy level, I just don't have the same energy I had 40 years ago. Funny <laughs> thing about that. <laughs> so I, I'm, I've sworn that I'm after this last, this next two that I'm doing, I'm going to really slow down and I'm going to start working on one at a time again. If, if you were to, at the height of your building, start to finish, what, what was the average time when you were, when you were really putting them out there that it would take you to, uh, to do like one mandolin? Well, that hasn't changed an awful lot. Um, I, I would say like an A model, um, is kind of like about 60 hours. Um, and that's, I think that's, that's pretty much from scratch. Um, and, uh, an F model is pretty much twice that. Um, and I've been working with a CNC for the last 20 years or so. Sure. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I, I hurt my arm in, what was it? 89? Oh geez. No, no. 90, 98. I, I blew my arm out, uh, working on my house and I was, I was laid up for almost a year and I was really bad tennis elbow. And uh, a fellow came along and said, oh, I know what you need. You need a CNC. And I wasn't a computer guy at all. And I thought, well, you know, this, I'm not going to be able to build mandolins anymore because of the carving and the, you know, the, with tennis elbow, you just can't do that. So I, I went and bought the CNC and uh, and um, spent about eight months learning how to uh, do um, CAD and and then um, uh, operate the machine and all the parameters and how to make parts. And I, I tested on um, styrofoam for the first while just to practice carving the plates and everything, you know, so I wouldn't waste any wood. <laughs> yeah. And eventually I got that together with all the inlay designs and the headstock and, and all that. And I've been, and it, it saved my career. It really did. Because, but now I, people say, oh, well, you have a CNC, so um, you can charge less because it takes so much less time to make them. And I say, no, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> um, sure, I can make plates quicker. I can do the headstock um, quicker and more exactly. It's always the same, the binding, the inlay. It's very, very efficient. But I now, like I say, probably probably 30% of the total time in in not having to do grunt work like like uh, carving out a maple back is is not very uh, rewarding in a lot of ways it's just a lot of bull work you know with a chisel and a hammer and, and little finger planes and lots of carving and carving and carving and it takes you know days to really get whip it into shape whereas now i can make those plates in a matter of a few hours they're they're done but i i spend I put all that time now in at the other end where it's more important. So once it's all glued up, there are uh, you're about halfway there or maybe about a third of the way there. And now there's another days of sanding and scraping and just finessing the graduations, the shape, the, you know, the heel, making it all very elegant. And so 
not that I did bad work back then, but now I have the luxury of, of putting the energy in where it really counts, you know, for the sound, for the look. And, and that, that equates into a, a, a better instrument. The, the fine tuning is so important. You know, when I think I'm there, I, I, I say, nope, I'll come back and I'll look at it tomorrow. And I always find something else to, okay, I can scrape a bit more there. I can thin the top a bit more there. Um, you know, so I take, I spend an extra week at least just going over it and over it and over it until it's, you know, every little detail is taken care of before I commit to the finish. Wow. That's and so neat. It, so it, ta- it, it takes just as much time really in the big picture, but I, I like to feel that I'm, I'm, I'm putting the, the customer's money at the, in the most important part of it, which is the making all the parts work together and making it, you know, the neck feel just right. You know, it's, it's a, it's an odd thing, but you can, you can carve a neck and think, Oh, that looks really great. It feels great. and everything. You can come back tomorrow and go, Oh no, it's a bit clubby or it's a little bit too much of a C shape instead of a nice soft V shape. So I'll scrape and I'll sand the neck a bit more. And I, and I really take my time on that. I just, uh, uh, days and days of coming back and just looking at it and feeling it. I don't like to rush anything at that point because that, that's what that neck is going to feel like for the rest of its life. And you, you have one chance really to make it right. So I, I spend so much more time now at the end and the setup very very crucial uh, you know i like to i like to think that i have a pretty good handle on what makes a, a neck and a, a setup feel really good and effortless to play and you know no struggle and you know the notes come popping out with a very little right hand involvement you know <laughs> what's your what when you when when it leaves your shop what's the action that you this is you know a big thing people always talk about high action low action you know everybody's got their opinion on that yeah. as far as players go but when it leaves your shop yeah. like from the i guess probably from the 12th fret what what do you like it to have at when it's set up by your hands going to somebody else um well I, it always depends uh, that's one of the last things that i ask the customer before i send it mm-hmm. after it's settled in for a couple of weeks i say okay i'm going to send it to you but now i really need to know um what kind of action do you like? Are you a, a light player? Like uh, Chris Thiele plays um, with command, but he's got such great technique that his action is very, very low, and he uses a fairly light pick, and he can he can get an enormous amount of sound out of it and no rattles at very low. Mark O'Connor was the same way. He liked super, super low action, but no rattles, right? And so some people want... Um, the the real high bluegrass you know cannon action where it's so it's high action and they can pound it and, and the <laughs> notes are really clear and they've got strong hands um, you know so that's that's kind of a very uh, last minute detail okay where do you want this set at and actually before I make the bridge is when I ask them that because I always like to leave a, a, a about a you know a millimeter. Uh, under a sixteenth of post showing underneath the saddle, so that there's room to lower it if 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 it gets too humid, um, but not so much post showing that if it gets really dry that they have to crank the bridge up. And I'm sure you've seen that um, a saddle sitting way up in the air, and there's a you know a half an inch of post showing, right, and, right. The, and the saddle's barely sitting on the on the the posts, you know, and and that's not right. So. I, I like to, I have to know all that right 
when it's settled in, what do I do? A good example of this is I just had a, got a call from a customer yesterday who's thinking about buying a used Madeline of mine that spent the last three years in a very wet part of Kauai. And when I sent it to him, the action was low and there was room to move the saddle down. But now it's swollen up so much that the, the, the bridge is all the way down and the action is still too high. And they were talking about having to shave the the bridge down. And I said, when did they get this mandolin? And he said, well, just this morning <laughs> from Hawaii. I said, I said, it's got to sit for two weeks in its case and, and acclimate. And I guarantee that that bridge is going to go down an eighth of an inch, like a huge amount. And then you can talk about adjusting it. Hey. Man, yeah, we got to shave the bridge. Well, how long's he had it? <laughs> Good lord, that's yeah, yeah. It just came from Hawaii, you know. I mean, it's all swollen up, and that's a huge problem because you know, you as a player, you know, instruments move with the humidity. Absolutely. And when I built when I built guitars for Mark O'Connor, he was traveling all the time from Nashville, where it's you know ten thousand percent humidity in the <laughs> summer, to to New Mexico in the winter, where it's in the in the teens, and he would call me. You know, the first the first while he'd call me from New Mexico in a, in a or in Arizona in a flop in the middle of January. He said, "Oh my God, the action's gone down so much, I can't even play it. I got to put something <laughs> under the saddle." So I started. I, I sent him a package of a variety of ebony shims to to put under the saddle to to raise it or lower it or whatever he needed to do after it settled in. And, and I've encountered that myself traveling and playing. The, the instruments move. So it's a very difficult thing, and I always say, where do you live? Um, how humid is it there? What's the, the driest it gets in the winter? Do you have a room that you keep your instruments in that's cool, that's away from a heat source, which is very drying in the winter? And I, all these little checklist things to, to, so that I know how I'm setting it up is going to work where, where it's going to. But the bottom line is that that instrument may not live there forever. It might, I might send it to somebody in, in Idaho, but the, it may end up in Hawaii eventually. So that's why you always build at 40% relative humidity. So the, the wood has room to shrink and it has room to expand without cracking and without bloating up so much that it's unplayable. And that's kind of the rule of thumb. And I, I have a thing. I, I, I tell people I do, do not use a humidifier in this mandolin. I don't care where you live. Do not use a humidifier. You you got to look after this instrument. Don't keep it in a hot room. Don't you know? Don't put it next to the heat register in your your house with your forced air furnace in winter. You you have to look after this. And um, you can have a humidifier in the room, but do not put a humidifier in the instrument or in the case because that causes an enormous problem. I have a stack of tops that I've had to replace over the years where somebody put one of those dampets inside the mandolin. Oh, wow. Wet, really wet, and it swole up the instrument. Great. Then they went off to a, 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 a workshop in January or, or even March somewhere very dry. And... All that excess moisture left in a huge hurry, and that's when that's when tops split, is when the moisture leaves too fast. So I say, look, you know, I can't, I cannot guarantee this instrument. If you use a humidifier, you're on your own, and uh, chances are you'll have to have the top replaced at some point. So I, I, I'm very adamant about that. Do not use a humidifier. And I have customers in in Phoenix. I have customers in Hawaii. 
Japan, uh, wherever. And as long as I build it right and they don't use a humidifier, the, the adjustable bridge is there for a reason. You can tweak it a little bit up and down seasonally, but you're not going to have a split top. It's really important. Yeah, and you seem like, I mean, just just talking to you and listen to this, it's just amazing the amount of communication that you that you relay between yourself and the customer. And I think that's kind of the case with like, mm-hmm. you know, all, all the great builders such as yourself. Just that, that's why there's different levels of prices in, in, in mandolins. And, you know, it's that's, yeah, it's that's partly right. Well, yeah, part of the process is you're not just buying a, a stock mandolin. You're you're um, uh, they're, they're commissioning my my time. And my, um, it's a it's a relationship uh, we we develop, and where we talk about all these details and the, what, you know what's important, and what they need to know to look after it, and um, and all the custom details, and and that's that's uh, it's a lot of time. I spend quite a lot of time uh, with some customers talking about all this, and then and then going over it again later on before I finish it, and um, it, it's and then people love that. That's the that's what they're. Partly, what they're paying for is a is a relationship with me, with the process, um, and uh, it, it, they they feel really, really, uh, you know, lucky to. I would too. I mean, if I had something built with by somebody who is um, so committed and uh, and uh, we're willing to work with them, uh, you know, and make it right for them, that's part of the process, and uh, that's that's reflected in the price too. I think. Sure, but that's. I mean, yeah. I I don't begrudge anybody on pricing. I mean, you're getting functional work of art when you are when you're when you're going into a certain level of mandolins. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there, right. there's a reason why they're priced that way. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not That's just right. it's not just made up. <laughs> you know? No, it's not. It's not just a, a number out of the out of the sky. You know, oh, I'm worth this much. There's a reason for it, and it's all those years of of experience and and um, of course the bottom line of the tone, the playability, the, the all the aesthetics. So, did when you had your waiting list, did you run into any of the issues? I know some builders because you know you were saying about the era. That's about when the internet was becoming pretty hot and people were buying yeah. buying instruments and selling them. You know, for more than what the builder was selling them. Oh the yeah. For so, did you yeah. run into that as well? Um. Only a couple of times. Um, one thing I did to to um, to check that was to um, I, I wouldn't let my my waiting list get more than three years, and I would I would I would set my price to reflect any possible you know craziness in the market, and and that, sure I might not be able to get quite as much as I would at the end there, but... I mean, it is a business. <laughs> yeah. You know I mean, it's... It's business, and yeah. we make so few instruments in a year that to lose uh, 50% on it, you know, is is huge. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. Have you uh, have you ever built one where you're like, oh, man, I want to keep this one for me? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the, the hardest things in my life is letting them go. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say all the time, but every now and then, you know, one just really speaks to me. I really love it. You know, the 
the sound, the look, and it was it was something that I would have commissioned myself, you know. And uh, and I oh, I keep it for another week, keep it for another week, and I play it. And I love to hear how they they break in, but you know, I eventually go, oh well, I think I have to let it go. I, I just shipped one a couple of days ago that was exactly like that. I had really worked on it for a long time for an old customer, and and I was just like fine tuning, and every day I do a little tweak, and and I was just I was just procrastinating getting rid of it because I loved sitting and playing it for a few minutes and hearing how it was developing and opening up and and eventually I, I finally on on Monday I think I said oh I've got to I got to ship this <laughs> I got to let go of it oh bye bye oh that's great which is silly because I don't play anymore I mean I I really other than you know a few testing it with a few tunes and you know chopping this and that I don't really play I don't play with anybody so I have really no need to keep them all but it's so hard you know <laughs> absolutely <laughs> you imagine having a baby and then letting it go yeah I mean, no you know? it's, yeah absolutely <laughs> I mean, not quite the same thing but you know on some levels it is you know you put an enormous amount of time into it and and and, and I sweat it you know I'm I'm a perf- I'm a perfectionist and I and like many artists, you know, we, we beat ourselves up, you know, uh, to thinking, oh, are we good enough? And, you know, are they going to be happy? Is this what they're going to, what they're going to love? And is it, oh, is it okay? And, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of, um, self doubt. I, I, I'm sure every builder feels that if, if you don't, uh, you got to put your, your, your ego in check. <laughs> but I, I think every builder just about feels that, that, um, that you know that oh, is this, I hope this is right for them. You know, I, it's it, it's really nice, but I, you know, I, I just worry about it. You know, so I have sleepless nights where I'm thinking, oh, is, did I get the color right? Did I get the setup right? Are, are they going to like it? Oh, oh. <laughs> wow, yeah. Well, you're an artist. That you're a true artist. You know, that's that's what I think all yeah, great artists do, and that's why all the great artists stay on top of their game because they still care. They're still working to be better yeah. even when they've been doing something for 40 years you're still you know you're still perfecting and perfecting which i think is cool well that is and i, and I, I tell everybody that i i teach or anybody that I, you know, that I talk with that i'm building for whatever i i have a saying that i learned at the very very beginning from a very generous fellow who taught me how to build guitars and he 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 can't even remember that he said this, but it, it was so impressionable on me that I, I've always remembered that he said, "You're only as good as the point that you say that's good enough." And and it stuck with me. I thought, you know, you're absolutely right. If you finish it off one day and you go, "Oh, that's good enough," I know, guaranteed that if you come back and look at it tomorrow, you're going to go, "No, it's not quite." not quite. I need to lower the action. I need to adjust the neck. I need to uh, polish that a little bit more. There's always a little something, not always, but at, at some point it's, it's there. But um, if you say, Oh, that's good enough. That, that's as good as you're ever going to get. And and I don't, I don't want to be there. I, I want to um, make it as good as I can. And the other thing I always keep in mind is I, is I say that uh, um, not only is it uh uh, good enough. But, um, every day in the shop when I'm working, if I don't learn something, I'm not paying attention because you're never there. It's, you can always see something more, always finesse something a little more, always adjust this or polish that or, or think, okay, next time I'm going to do this there. 
because like on, a, on an F model mandolin, you, as you know, there are so many angles, so many um, curves and arches and relationships of the neck and that's, uh, everything has to look and fit right together. And that's what makes the whole package look so, um, you know, uh, um, appealing when it's, when it works, it's, 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 a, it's a, like you say, it's a, it's functional art. And, and I don't ever feel that I know everything. I don't, I, you know, you only know a fraction and I, I expect my whole life, I'll probably only know, you know, X amount of percentage of, of what is needed to know to, to be the bat, you know, to be really good at it. So I, every day I've got to learn something and I do, I, every day I, if I'm paying attention, I learn something new and I, Oh wow. That, I didn't see that before. Great. Great. You know, <laughs> yeah. it is that famous quote by uh, uh, Pablo Casal where somebody says, says Pablo, you know, you're 90 years old and you're the best cellist in the world and you practice every day. And he says, yeah, you know, I think I'm about to get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Now, besides yeah. besides instruments um, that you built, have you ever played a uh, instrument that you haven't built that is that you've been like, whoa, that's uh, that that's pretty amazing. Oh yeah, well, no, probably so probably what, a bunch you know, of them, I guess. I'd imagine. Well, that's that's true. Uh, yeah, it happens quite often, and and it's. Uh, you know, it's, it, it goes with uh, you know always doubting your own as being good enough. You know, <laughs> right. I'll play a, I'll play a, a, a nugget or something that somebody has. Or we do you know swapping at a festival, and I'll go, oh my god, this is this is such an incredible mandolin, and, <laughs> and all it all it does is it makes me go, okay, what what is going on here? Right, why, right. why is this so incredible? I have got to figure that part out. And, uh, you know, and, I, and so I go and I, I, I study a bit more, I practice a bit more, I play with the, the arches and the tone bars and, and um, figure things out. For instance, um, within the last two years, I learned something that I had no, no idea of, that the lower era mandolins, they were using Sitka spruce for the tone bars. Oh, wow, really? And that, well, that's what I heard. And and come to and I come to think of it, I've worked on John's lore enough that I know I've looked inside it, and I always wondered why the tone bars looked kind of brown, uh, you know, a little brownish, which is what Sitka does when it gets old. And and so I've got some beautiful old Sitka spruce that was um, dunnage from the docks in the 30s that this old violin maker that I met um, absconded with, <laughs> and, and he took he took. Beautiful old growth Sitka spruce to uh, four by fours that he made his violins from, and I bought a bunch of it, and I still use it for all my guitars. I use nothing but this beautiful old growth Sitka spruce. It's just remarkable, wonderful material, and and so in the last two years, I went, oh, I got to try that. That's interesting. So I um I had been using nothing but old red spruce for the the top, you know the tone bars, and so I switched to the Sitka. And oh my, there's a whole new um, tonal element, and uh, you know it's subtle. It's not uh, you know it's not like night and day, but it's it's there. You can hear it. And Sitka is the the reason they use Sitka spruce for um, wing spars for airplanes and for uh, masts and things because Sitka, of all the spruces, has the most elastic memory. You can bend a piece of Sitka spruce and it will 
always spring right back to where you started. Oh, wow. It has this enormous elastic memory, which is something you really want in a brace that's going to be inside an instrument for possibly hundreds of years. <laughs> right, you don't right. want it to fatigue and sag. And not that red spruce will, but Sitka is so um, superior for that. So anyway, for the last two years, I've been doing all my mandolins with Sitka tone bars, and I've carved, been carving them very slim, um, V sometimes, sometimes more round. I experiment with the different tonal characteristics of that. But I, I have to say that the, the last year or two, the, the sound has been just, whoa. You <laughs> That's know, so cool. Like, it's so, so wonderful. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's really, really cool because, uh, um, you know, your mandolins sound different than Ellis' mandolins, sound different than Gilchrist's mandolins. And it's, it's the same as yeah. saying... Thiele sounds different than Reichman, sounds different than Bush, sounds different than Grisman. You know what I mean? You you've, you, you guys yeah. have carved out a unique voice. And I think it's, right. it's magical, man. I mean, it's, you know, at the, at the end of the day, that's it's what you kind of hope happens, and, and you've done it. I think that's so neat. Well, thank you. That, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's mission, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. But going back to what I was saying earlier, though, about the about so much of the sound being in the player's hands, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'd be, I'd be very hard pressed. And I think just about everyone else would agree that, um, if I was just listening to John Reichman, um, uh, blindfolded, I would have a really hard time telling if he was playing his lore or if he was playing, uh, this or this or whatever, because so much of the sound is in their hands and they can, they sound like them no matter what they're playing on. When I first realized that that it, that it was more the ha- the player's hands and and only the instrument was only a part of the the whole sound, was was a, a day that I really woke up and and th- thought differently about how I build, um, and that was um, I had the the great pleasure of, of getting to open for Stefan Grappelli oh, many wow. years ago. Oh, huge fan. kidding i lived and breathed django when i was about 25 for for several years and uh, i just I, I just absorbed everything stefan did i mean not that i can play like that but i, I sure tried and but what i got from it was um anyway at this concert and in, during the um halftime we, we both played two sets so in the break um we were hanging out and uh, stefan said oh may i may i try your violin yeah please do and and he and he picked it up and it was a it was a beat up old fiddle that I think I paid a hundred dollars for. It was nothing special, but it was very old. He picked it up and he played it, and honest to God, it sounded like Stefan Grappelli with his violin. <laughs> I mean, it sounded beautiful and huge and all those lovely harmonics he did and all those, everything right in my face. And I, and I remember when he gave it back to me, I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, 
<laughs> this has nothing to do with this fiddle. It has to do with practice and 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 the player's hands. And I and I got to um, sit with him while he while he warmed up, and I watched him bowing and and fingering. And I learned so much about his tone, how he made his tone with his very light touch with his left hand. He didn't he didn't grip the neck hard. He played on top of the strings and got that beautiful harmonicy, sweet sweet thing going on. You know, and I thought. Oh, no, no. So much of, of what we're hearing is his hands. And that's, that's, that was the day I learned that, that, you know, I can, and I can make them as, as, as much as I want one way or the other, but it's up to the player mm-hmm. to practice and to, to, to get that tone and to, to not, not skim, skim over notes that they, that are uncomfortable because you're, you're never going to get it unless you work on it and, and get past that and learn about how to get the tone out of your fingers. It's all in the fingers and the pick and the bow. It, it, that's where it's all, it's all made. But, but you know, n- n- that being said, you, you still want a reasonably good instrument that's capable of producing that, you know, but anyway, that was a, an awakening for me. Wonderful day. A buddy of mine worked at uh, elderly instruments and um, he said he was just walking through one day and somebody had just picked up a mandolin like off the wall and just played. He's like, it's just like a G scale. And he's like, it was the best sounding G scale I've ever heard. And he's like, I turned to look, it was Chris Thiele. <laughs> it's just like just yeah, some random, yeah, right. you know, just some random mandolin, just a random scale, yeah. best sounding thing he's ever heard. And he turns around and it's Chris Thiele. And I'm like, yeah, there you go, man. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's also in the hands. Yeah. So. Well, I got one more question and I know you're not a beer drinker. And so yeah. my question for you is, do you have a fiddle tune that when that mandolin's ready to ship off or when you're testing it, do you have a favorite fiddle tune you like to play? Oh, um, gee, that's, that's a good question. Um, favorite fiddle tune. Uh, not so much, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll, I'll go through, I'll go through, um, a few things, you know, I'll, I'll play a little bit of Jerusalem Ridge or um, for that, you know, that that bottom end, you know, to get the, the, the G, G and D string, hear them. And then I'll do a little bit of uh, St. Anne's Reel to, to play on the D and the A. And one thing that I always do, it's not so much about tunes for me, it's about um, what I want to hear is the, the balance from string to string. And and a good a good growl on the bottom, good pop in the middle, and highs that are clear, um, and and balanced and and punchy, but not harsh. You mm-hmm. know, sweet on every note. So what I do more than tunes is I play um, chords. So I'll play uh, um, you know a G chord with just the E and the A string and the D and the E. E, G and G open, and and to hear the the balance between open strings and closed strings, and then I'll I'll play chords like minor chords going up the neck, um, so that when I get up to about a D at the you know at the tenth fret, playing a full barred um, D chord, not a not a bluegrass chord shape, but the the other one you know with the bar and the the, the little pink ring finger on the A and E string, and I'll play a chord. Not like a chop, but a a real brum, like a brush across all the strings, very even to hear which string jumps out and which one doesn't jump out. And what I want to hear is I want to when I hear that chord brum, I want to hear the G string and I want to hear the high E, the high D note in the mix. 
like without having to it. I want to hear balance, you know. Because when when they're brand new, they don't have all the tonality yet, and they haven't really woken up. They, they and I and I do this over the course of a week or two, and keep doing the same thing and hear the bass come alive, hear the mids starting to really pop, and but the E string is the real problematic one on a mandolin. I find that uh, same with fiddles. I mean, you can, you can have an E string that's just horrible. It's just shrieky, <laughs> and, and it's, you've got a wolf note on the G sharp, which is a really annoying thing on fiddles um, if you play an E. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I want to hear all those strings really evenly, and I don't want I don't want anybody to have to fight to, with their E string to to get some volume out of it. So if it doesn't appear in that chord, brrrup, brrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr